0: Turn again to the little letter of Second uh, Peter, Peter's Second Epistle, Chapter One. This book, of course, was authored by the Apostle Peter, whose name uh, originally was Simeon or Simon, who was nicknamed Peter by our Lord. As you know, uh, the word Peter means uh, rock. I suppose if Peter lived today, we would call him Rocky. He, uh, he was given that, that name because the Lord saw him not as he was, but uh, saw him in terms of what he was to become. Peter did become the leading statesman of the early church. I, for one, believe in the preeminence of Peter among the apostles and in the early church. I don't believe he transmitted that authority to the, to the next generation of believers, but Peter was a very important person. The spokesman for the apostles, and ultimately the great statesman of the early church, certainly the eastern uh, wing of the early church. But Peter was not always that kind of person. He didn't begin that way. Certainly wasn't very rock-like initially. He tended to be rather impulsive, and, and though he had moments of uh, strength, he was up and down, as we are so often. I uh, read a story some time ago about Goodson Borglum, who is is the designer and sculptor of the uh, figures of the presidents, Lincoln and Washington, Jefferson and uh, Teddy Roosevelt on Mount Rushmore in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Uh, incidentally, he's from Idaho. And uh, he uh, sculpted those great figures of these four men on that mountain. He had a, a housekeeper an elderly housekeeper who was a local woman who had often uh, seen Mount Rushmore before he began the project but she had never seen the finished uh, work until Borglum was done and he took her to the observation point to look at his uh, at the end product and her comment was Mr Borglum how did you know that Mr Lincoln was in all that rock and that's uh, that's the way the lord sees us he sees the Image of our Lord Jesus in us—it's been implanted there because we've been given the divine nature. And though we may look like a shapeless uh, heap of rock at times, at times the Lord sees Himself in us, and He's not going to stop until we're what He intends us to be. He doesn't look for perfection; He just looks for progress as we cooperate with His divine, divine nature. Now, the first chapter of 2 Peter divides very nicely into two divisions. There are two paragraphs here. The first 11 uh, verses are something of an introduction which Peter calls his gospel. That is the gospel, the apostolic message, the message that the apostles delivered, which they received from the Lord. We, he says, received everything that's essential for life and godliness, and we received the promises that are embodied in the New Testament. The Lord passed his authority on to the apostles. And the apostles then spoke with the same authority that uh, our Lord Jesus had. And that's what enables us, Peter says, to become partakers of the divine nature as we believe the gospel that the apostles taught. We share in the divine nature. Christ comes to live in our hearts. And because he's there, we begin to change. We can add to that basic faith that we have in Christ, goodness, goodness, and self-control and perseverance and brotherly kindness and ultimately love. We grow from faith to love as we count on His indwelling presence. Now, uh, Peter says if we're doing that, if we're growing in grace, we're never going to be unfruitful. We may be laid aside in terms of some visible ministry, but we'll never be useless and and fruitless. Did I say fruitful? I meant fruitless in, uh, in God's sight. We'll always be fruitful, always. Now, Peter says, if we're growing in grace, then we're confirming our call and election. He does not mean by that that if we're not growing in grace in some portion of our life that we're going to lose our salvation. But he does mean that the evidence that our lives have been changed is that we're making progress toward love. We're becoming a more loving people. We're better people. That's the mark. That's the mark. Peter along with so many other, uh, uh, with, with other of the apostles and, so, and in so many other places in the New Testament indicate that the mark of regeneration is a changed life. We cannot go on justifying disobedience and call ourselves Christians. We may fail from time to time, but we can't justify sexual immorality or uh, deceit or racism, or any of the sins condemned in the New Testament and call ourselves Christians. We just can't. That's Peter's point. If Christ has come to live in our life, then we're going to change. We must change. We're new creatures. We're sons of God. And uh, unless we begin to behave like sons of God, then we may legitimately question whether we are a son of God. Now, I want to say again, we cannot lose our salvation. Once we have given our hearts to the Lord Jesus and we have been reborn, we've received a new life from above, then we're secure to the end. Peter himself says in his first epistle, we are saved through faith unto salvation. God, God even guards our faith. It's not even up to us to believe. God will see to it that we believe. But if we can go through life and disregard what Christ says, care nothing for His Lordship, live as we please and just trip along and ignore the, the truth of the apostles, then we have no guarantee that we belong to Him. We make our calling sure, He says, through our intent to obey. Now that's what Peter describes of, as his gospel in these opening uh, verses, which has been transmitted to us and which changes us. And in verse 12, He says, Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. The therefore indicates a change in topic, but it links this paragraph with the paragraph that comes before. Given the nature of our message, he says, I'm going to say it again and again and again because I don't have anything else to say. The old news is the good news. The message hasn't changed. The gospel uh, isn't updated every other year or so. We have to keep going back to the apostles for what we believe. And Peter says, as long as I'm around, as long as I have life and breath in this body, I'm going to say these things again and again. We're going to go back to basics. Someone asked Billy Martin what he was going to do when he took over as the manager of the New York York Yankees and... uh, had that bevy of superstars to handle. And they said, what, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to teach them how to throw a baseball. I'm going to teach them how to bat. I'm going to teach them how to run the bases. I'm just going to go back to basics. Someone says that's true of Tom Landry. Terry Pepe was telling us Wednesday that, that uh, training camp every year, Landry just goes back and teaches the basics, teaches them, teaches them huddle formations and lineman stance and how to block and tackle and just the basics. Have to keep going back and back and back again. To the basics. As Jude puts it, there is a faith that was delivered once to the saints. That's the basic facts of the gospel. Never changes. Can't be updated. Needs to be applied perhaps in different ways because circumstances change, but the message never changes. And Peter says, I'm going to say it again and again and again as long as I have life in this body. In verse 13, he says, I consider it right, I deem it right, as long as I am in this tent. That's, uh, that's his word for his body. It's in line with his other statements in 1 Peter about life being a pilgrimage, a sort of journey, and our bodies are just tents, which we temporarily inhabit. And as long as I'm in this tent, it's, it's right to keep stirring you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly tent is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. John had not been written yet, and perhaps uh, the word was not widespread that uh, Peter would shortly die, would be lifted up, as Jesus put it. And uh, we know from the tradition of the early church that Peter was, uh, shortly after writing this letter, crucified, perhaps upside down, in Nero's uh, garden. Uh, We're told in the 14th year of Nero that uh, Peter was killed in Nero's garden. Nero just uh, used him for sport. Uh, One of the uh, early leaders of the church, a man named Caius, who lived in the 3rd century, the middle of the 200s A.D., said that in his day you could see the trophies of the apostles in Rome. Paul on the Ostian Way, which was the main highway leading south out of Rome, and Peter in Nero's gardens. Now, by trophies, he meant their tombstones. They could see the memorials of the apostles there. And the word that he uses is a word that was used in, uh, in the Greek of that day for a triumphal uh, memorial, a stele of some kind that was erected on a field of battle to indicate who won. And instead of looking at the apostles' tombstones as a sign of defeat, it was, uh, for chaos, a sign of victory. They had laid aside their tents and been placed in the ground, but they were victorious. I had a a professor uh, once, Jack Finnegan, who told me that he felt that the fact that Paul was buried on the Ostian Way and Peter in Nero's palace was highly significant. Paul on the Ostian Way, on the, the highway out of Rome, because it indicated his strong desire to be on the road to preach the gospel where Christ had never been proclaimed, and uh, Peter in Nero's gardens in the ruins of his palace to show that uh, that uh, the rule of the tyrant was short-lived, but Peter's triumph was forever. As someone has said, we we name our dogs Nero and we name our our sons Peter. Peter was victorious, but uh, he did go to his death. He said, "It's it's imminent," and. Before I go to my death, he says, I, I want you to remember these things. And he's thinking of what he had written in First and Second Peter. And furthermore, he says in verse 15, I will also be diligent so that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. And I think here he's referring to the gospel of Mark. It's generally agreed that, that Peter was really the author of that gospel. Mark was his scribe. But the early church indicates that Peter wrote a gospel just like John and Matthew did. And, and Mark served as his, as his interpreter and scribe and wrote down Peter's preaching. And I think that's what he's referring to here. Even as he was facing his death, it was imminent, he's making preparation even now with Mark to transcribe his sermons so that there would be a gospel left behind so that people could continue to remember what the apostles preached. Because everything is based upon their preaching that's the basis of everything. And Peter says it's important that we do that because we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eye witnesses of his majesty. I'm not passing on legends he says and stories, wild tales The word that he uses for tales is a word for allegory. An allegory is a story, a fictitious story that embodies some truth. Have you ever heard someone say, it doesn't really matter that Jesus lived. What matters is that we follow the teachings of Jesus. Or it doesn't make any difference if Jesus rose from the dead. What matters is that we believe in a resurrection. Well, that's nonsense. Peter says, we believe what we believe because we actually saw it. It actually happened. There is a historic point of origin. It happened in history. It really happened. Jesus lived. He taught. He died. He rose from the dead. We saw it. An eyewitness is always the, uh, the best witness. He says, we were We were there. I remember once talking to the man who was the dean of the chapel at Stanford, uh, Stanford University, the chaplain there, and we were talking about the resurrection. We used to have uh, an Easter service in Frost Amphitheater every year. It was basically an evangelistic service for students. And in preparation for that event, we were working through the Stanford Chapel to set this thing up. And I was talking to the dean of the chapel And uh, he kept referring to what he called the Easter event. And finally I got around to asking him what he meant by the Easter event. And he says, well, I believe that the apostles believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And I said, well, uh, did he in fact rise from the dead? And he said, no. He said, "And, and you no more believe than I do that a carcass, a dead carcass, could come back to life. And I said... But, but I do. Paul said, if, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is vain. If it didn't really happen, well, we don't have anything to believe. We can make words mean anything we want them to mean. As the Cheshire cat said to Alice, words are exactly what I want them to mean, nothing more and nothing less. Unless there is some point in history in which it really happened, we have no gospel. But Peter says it really happened. As John puts it, we saw Him. We touched Him with our hands. We gazed upon Him. They ate with Him. They walked with Him along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They fished with Him. They camped out with Him. They had seen Him in every circumstance. He really lived. He was really there. It actually happened. And Peter says, we're eyewitnesses of it. Dorothy Sayers in her... The old book, Creed and Chaos, puts it this way. Christianity is, of course, not the only religion that has found the best explanation of human life in the idea of an incarnate and suffering God. The Egyptian Osiris died and rose again, and then she cites a number of other examples in, in pagan literature of a dying and rising God or a suffering God. But in most theologies, the God is supposed to have suffered and died in some remote and mythical period of prehistory. The Christian story, on the other hand, starts off briskly in St. Matthew's account with a place and a date. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, St. Luke, still more practically and prosaically, pins the thing down by a reference to a piece of government finance. God, he says, was made man in the year when Caesar Augustus was taking a a census in connection with a scheme of taxation. Similarly, we might date an event by saying that it took place in the year that Great Britain went off the gold standard. About 33 years later, we are informed God was executed for being a public nuisance under Pontius Pilate, much as we might say when Mr. Johnson Hicks was Home Secretary. It is as definite and concrete as that. Peter says it really happened. We go back to one historic point of origin. He really lived. That's what uh, John in his little book calls the beginning. That was the beginning. It began. It happened. He was here. We saw him. We looked at him. Gazed upon him is the word. Scrutinized him. Handled him with our hands. Thomas put his hand on the scars and the palms of his hand and his side. And these men went out convinced that he was who he claimed to be. This is not a legend. It's not a myth. We didn't make it up. It's not an allegory that embodies truth but doesn't have any historic basis. It really happened. And the event that Peter refers to here as an illustration is the, is the transfiguration. In verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is his name for, for the Father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance from the mountain when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now if you want to know what Peter is referring to, turn back to Mark the ninth chapter. since this is Peter's gospel, we need to see uh, need to read his report of it. Mark 9 verses one through 8. The Lord introduces this um, occasion by telling him in verse 38 of chapter 8, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then to help them face up to the facts, he says to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Same word that Peter uses, we saw him, his power and his glory. And six days later, and none of the apostles had died in the interim, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. He said, some of you won't die until you see the kingdom of God coming with power. And then he gave them a, a kind of sneak preview, just the three of them on the mountain, perhaps on the top of Mount Hermon, great peak in the northern part of Israel and The Lord went up there to pray, and He was transfigured before them, and they saw Him in His glory. They saw Him as He really was. John says, we saw His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw that He was God, made flesh. And uh, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And someone has said there are those who have something to say and there are those who have to say something, and Peter was in that uh, <laughs> situation. He just had to say something, what he said was absolutely wrong. Uh, he was thinking of Jesus in line with other great uh, men of the past, Moses and Elijah, But uh, the Lord, the Father, corrects him with a thunderous voice from heaven. Verse 7, a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This, not these other two men, not Moses and Elijah, but this, this one is my beloved son. Listen to him, listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus only. The glory faded away and he looked just like he'd always looked. He'd stepped right back into glory. For myself, I don't think that Jesus ever had to die. He says, uh, no one takes my glory from me. It wasn't the cross that killed him. He could have hung on the cross forever. Gave up his soul. He didn't have to die. At any time, he could have stepped right back into glory. And that's what happened here on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw... Shining out through his humanity the glory of God. Peter says, we really saw that. We saw it with our eyes. We're not making this up. It's real. It really happened. Go ask John. Go ask James. They'll confirm it. And that's what he means back in 2 Peter when he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we heard this utterance made from the heaven. That is the voice from the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now the conclusion is found in verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. The Greek word means squalid, dark as well as dirty, which is a very apt uh, term, I think, for the world that we live in. It's like a lamp shining in a squalid place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. It's a beautiful uh, figure of the coming of Christ. And the day dawns and the Lord will shed light on everything. But in the meantime, he says you do well to pay attention to the one light that we have that shines in a dark place. That's the prophetic word which Peter says we have made more sure. The word that's translated to the phrase, it's translated more sure, is a word that means probably more properly certified. This is, uh, we have the credentials to speak as the prophets speak, and it's in the comparative degree. We have greater credentials, but not greater than the prophets, that's not what he means. Greater than anyone else in the world today, specifically the the false teachers that are mentioned in chapter 2. We speak truth. Our word is prophetic. It's, it's as authoritative as the prophetic word of the Old Testament. That's why Paul can say, gathering up both the Old and the New Testament, all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be perfect, completely equipped for every good work. It's all profitable. It's useful. It's helpful. It's a light shining in a dark place. Other uh, philosophies may uh, shed a bit of light. They're like a match that you strike and it flares up and then goes out. Sounds good for a while. Schools of philosophy or schools of psychology or Est or TM or or whatever, they come and go. There's uh, one every year that's the rage. But they don't really lend any light to the squalid scene. They seem to for, for a while but there are no real answers. They don't really teach us how to cope with life, and how to be godly. They don't tell us what to do when our families start to fall apart, when our relationship with our children begins to suffer, or we suffer financially, or we feel guilty, or lonely, or afraid, and the world begins to close in on us. It's only the Word of God that gives light in this dark place. That's the light that we look to until the sun comes up, until the Lord Jesus comes back, and sets everything right. When I uh, lived in Texas, we used to make trips down to the Big Bend country, which is the southwest corner of Texas where the Rio Grande makes that swing down to the south. There's a little range of mountains there called the Chizos Mountains, and a lot of desert, beautiful, rugged country. It's much like the desert to the south of us here between Boise and the Snake River. And uh, we were camped down there one spring in a little grove of cottonwood trees, and uh, we'd settle down for the night. It was about 10 o'clock, and a truck pulled up, a camper, and disgorged half a dozen kids and adults and a little dog, and uh, they set up camp just right close to us, right by our fire, and uh, uh, they tied the little dog on the bumper of the camper, and because it was a warm night, they all slept outside right behind the the truck. We chatted with them for a little while, and Eventually went to sleep, and about 12 o'clock when the fire died down, this little dog began to howl. And uh, I got up to try to quiet him, because nobody else could sleep, and uh, I heard all this snuffling around in the dark and movements out beyond the range of vision. The fire had died down, and it was quite dark, but I could hear things moving out there. And I got a kind of a creepy feeling, and I went to the car and got my flashlight and started shining it around, and I saw all these little pinpoints of light all through the sagebrush, just dozens of them. I started counting, and, and when I got to about 30 and divided, and divided them by two, I realized that uh, there was an awful lot of something out there in the dark. <laughs> And uh, so I gathered up some firewood and started heaping it on the fire. And pretty soon it had a pretty good uh, fire going. And you could see out on the edge of of the light, on the perimeter of the light, a bunch of coyotes. Must have been thirty or forty of them out there, sitting on their haunches, just watching that little dog licking their chops. <laughs> and uh, I cheered myself with the thought that coyotes never hurt anybody, but. Uh, It's hard to convince yourself of that in the middle of the night. And I woke a couple of guys up, and we spent the rest of the night piling wood on the fire until the sun came up. And I've often thought of that as an illustration of the part that the Word plays in in our life today. The world, the darkness of the world has a way of closing in around us, and there are an awful lot of strange things out there, frightening things that are closing in on us as well. And what keeps them at bay is the light of the Word. That's what chases away the despair and the darkness in our own hearts, the guilt, the loneliness, the feelings of inferiority, the, that crushed feeling that we get from time to time when we, we lose the battle. It's the Word that sheds light upon our life. And I would just leave with you two ideas that come out of my observation of this passage. One, don't let anybody take the light away from you. There's a, there are a lot of people in the world who are saying we have the light. It's all right to listen to them, but take what they say and lay it alongside Scripture. And if it doesn't correspond with Scripture, don't believe it. It's not truth. Scripture corrects every other point of view. Let's correct everything by Scripture. We need to know what's happening out there in the world, and we need to read and be alert to what's going on. But, but Scripture is our final and absolute authority. Don't let anyone take that away from you. And secondly, don't forego for yourself the use of the light. I have told the story before of the young man I saw once sitting in the library at Berkeley reading a comic book, and and it just struck me as so odd. Here's the wisdom of the ages all around, and he was reading a Bugs Bunny comic book. And uh, so often that's what we do. We forego the use of the word. We watch hours and hours and hours of television, and we spend hours and hours and hours of time on our vehicles and, and doing all sorts of things, none of which are necessarily wrong, but Then we say, I don't have time to spend in the Word. I'm too busy. And we've set aside the one thing that will give us light in this world. So that's the word of the apostles. It's real. It really happened. Now we need to pay attention to it, as Peter puts it. Actually, the word is translated pay attention to it is a word that means to be addicted to something. It's the word that's used in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, with reference to deacons they're not to be addicted to much wine same word be addicted to the word of God it's alright to be hooked on it that's what he's saying that's alright let it do its work in your life get into the word that's the light that is going that's the lamp that's going to shed light on the squalid world in which we live let's stand together Father, forgive us our poor sense of priority, our tendency to spend our time doing everything else in the world except the things that really count. And give us instead a a hunger for the Word, a desire to read it and to know it and to obey it, to live by it in this world. We want it to give light to us and we want to use it in order to give light to others. Make us men and women of your book, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.